For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Uh, Father, we just thank you for that reminder through your word that we are indeed a community, but more than that, uh, we are a body and a family. And we pray that, especially as we are living in difficult times where we see and hear about divisions, uh, people facing against each other, with different races, threats of war, and especially the temptation uh, to compromise or to be apathetic. I pray that we will not give in to those temptations, but rather that we would be people who will be moved by God. I pray that we will not be moved by fear, uh, but rather that we would want to see changes being made in us and around us. And we especially want to pray for President Moon and President Trump. And we ask God just for your wisdom uh, during these times that they would have uh, the right advisors and that, Father, that you be the one speaking to them directly. And we thank you for this body of Christ, which is our faith community. And we pray that each and every one of us, Lord, here would find our purpose of why you brought us to Korea and why you brought us here at OEM. And as we look to you and to your word, may we be gracefully broken in our pride and our view of church. May we live to build your name more than our own. And so we pray all these things in the name of your magnificent son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, I believe every one of us would love to be taken care of. We love to have people look after our needs and make sure that we have everything that we want so that we would be comfortable. Uh, I remember uh, reading an article in the sports section uh, about a coach uh, who was coaching the uh, men's basketball team in the University of Utah, and it's a Division I school. And it was, what was fascinating was that this man was single, and he was like in his late 50s. And, you know, he wasn't living at home. Uh, he didn't have a house. He wasn't living with his parents. Uh, but he chose to live in a hotel. It's really fascinating. Uh, even though he makes a ton of money, he makes probably six figures in U.S. dollars, not in Korean. And that's a lot of money in America. You can buy like a mansion. But he chose to live in this dinky little hotel room every single day. And, you know, the bill would pile up. They asked him, like, why do you choose to live there? And he answered, it's because of all the convenience. You know, every day he would have a person come in, vacuum, make his bed, tidy up everything so that it would look nice. And whenever he was hungry, he could just simply pick up the phone and call and order whatever he wanted, and room service would be delivered very quickly. Sounds kind of like Korea, right? Well, anyway, he enjoyed that so much that he chose to live in this hotel more than anything. And so he had all the luxuries of having people serve him. You know, in Korea, I found out that the birthing tradition has changed a lot in the recent years. You know, it was common and natural for new moms to go straight home from the hospital. You know, after you deliver your child, you know, you take it home and you take care of your child. And, I mean, where else would you go, right? Uh, but nowadays, new moms 
seemed to make a two to three week, week long stop at one of the country's growing number of postpartum care centers. And it's basically you check into this maternity hotel and after getting discharged from the hospital and you stay there for several weeks. And I heard several maternity hotels, they provide six gourmet meals and snacks a day. They also give European face massages. I don't know what that means. Um, they also give you body massages that promise to shed baby weight. You get yoga lessons and various classes to help train moms learn how to bathe and feed their newborns. And so people say it's, a, it's an unforgettable experience, and I believe it. And, you know, my wife would love to have this kind of experience when she gave birth to our, our four kids. I'm sure every mom would love that. Because you get to have the kind of service where you get treated 24 hours a day from head to toe. But Christ gives us a different perspective on what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God. D.L. Moody once said, The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. And so we're going to take a look at the ultimate servant on this earth, Jesus Christ. And so the title of today's passage is Dying to Serve. And it's one of those titles that was like epiphany. I was like, wow, this title fits perfectly. And I was really actually proud of myself. I trying to be humble. But it's actually a double entendre. So if you... English majors, it's a double meaning. And so meaning dying to serve, meaning eager, eager to serve, but also dying in the sense you become selfless and you learn to give yourself in terms of being a servant. And so let's take a look at today's passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. Mark 10, 35 to 45. And I'll read that for us. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. And so as we see this passage, it's an amazing passage. It's filled with so many things that's going on that you need to really pay attention to what is, is taking place and what is being said between these two, uh, two parties. And the first thing that we see here is that it's not about status. It's not about status. And we're, we're finding out about these two brothers, and they're named James and John. And they were the sons of Zebedee. And so if you look at Mark 3.17, they were given the name that meant sons of thunder. Right? So if you can imagine what this personality must have meant for them to be called sons of thunder. Right? They weren't like sons of grace or sons of honesty or sons of generosity or you know, sons of humor, but they were called sons of thunder. You know, it's like having the name Thor. It's like you know they mean business and they have something rumbling about them that wherever they go, their presence would be felt. And to, just to give you an example of what it was like for these two brothers, Luke 9, 53, 54 says, this is a little excerpt, I'll read that for us. It says, But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? And so this it's the personality of James and John. They have the audacity to say, Jesus, do you want us to call fire from heaven and kill these people who aren't listening to you that will not obey you? We'll do it. Jesus, just give us the word, tell us the order, and boom, these people will turn to ashes. I don't know if they really could do that or if they were just you know, being symbolic or if they wanted to have a reason to beat up on some people. Maybe they just had pent-up testosterone, you know, and they needed to release it, and they needed to just pummel some people down to the ground. And maybe these people were just irritating them. They just wanted to show them and give them some, some knuckle sandwiches or something, right? And so this is the kind of personality James and John possessed. And so they were like the personal bodyguards of Jesus Christ. And these are the type of people you want on your side. Like wherever Jesus went, I'm sure they were right next to him. And these are the types of people you would want if you were walking down a dark alley. And so that's the kind of background. And maybe that's why they were given this nickname. And so this gives us an idea of who they are. And so now we turn to this outrageous request that they bring forth in the presence of Jesus. And they approach Jesus with this request that they want to sit down at the highest position allowed. They basically wanted to be the right-hand man, which means that they wanted to be second in command. You know, they acknowledge that there's God, you know, there's Jesus, and then next they wanted to be the ones next to Christ. So they wanted to be as close to Jesus as possible. You know, if you've ever been to a concert or a sporting event, you know that the, the seats that are at the very front of the arena are the most expensive. 
those are only given to people who have the status of VIP or people who have lots of money and who can afford to be that close to celebrities. And that's what they wanted. They basically wanted VIP passes to be next to Jesus when he went up to heaven. When he had his authority, they wanted to be right next to him. So what was this outrageous request? We see here that they wanted to be there with Jesus. And the reason behind their, their request was based on their relationship with Jesus. Matthew 20, 20 to 21 tells us that it was actually the mother of James and John who made this request first. You know, she had like that ajima power, right? She had that idea, she had that nunchi, she had that idea, she had that thought, you know, I have my two sons and I don't know if they'll ever get married, but I want to make sure that when they get to heaven, they have the best position. And so the mom comes in, right? And she makes sure that she addresses to Jesus, hey, these are my kids, these are my two sons, take care of them. And so they were basically cashing in on this promise that when Jesus said that the 12 disciples, that you would all be sitting on the throne, 12 thrones judging all the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. And so they get their own custom seats, right? And so they're like, wow, how cool is that? I get to judge one of the tribes of Israel that's only given to 12 people. Well, it's very interesting, the timing of this request. It's funny because when I first read it, you know, I was saying to myself, man, these two guys are as insensitive as it gets, you know? My wife always complains to me saying that I'm insensitive. That, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I was notorious for giving my students nicknames. And they were, some of them were not very kind, you know. And so my wife was like, why would you do that to them? And I was like, you know, because they feel like they're part of this group and they love having nicknames. But she's like, no, these kids are young and you could be scarring them. You could be, you know... Having, giving them nightmares because of what you did. And there are some girls that I made cry. She's like, you are so insensitive. And I believe that these guys made me look like a saint. Right? These guys were more insensitive than I could ever be. Why? Because a few verses before this section, we read that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and that he will eventually die. And you would think that when you hear this, they would be sad. They're like, oh my goodness, no, no, Jesus, that cannot happen. We will fight for you. We will fight to the death. We will make sure that this doesn't happen to you. But rather, they don't understand what's going on. And so it will be, for instance, like a, your parents telling you, gathering all the kids together and telling them, you know, I have, we have an announcement. And they say that your mom has cancer. And you hear that, and, you're, and you call, you go up to your mom, and you say, Mom, can you make sure that I get everything in that will that you wrote out for me? Can you make sure that I get that tomorrow? That would be very insensitive. But this is exactly what they were doing to Jesus. And each day, as they're living their lives, Jesus is drawing closer to his crucifixion. And yet, each day these disciples were not drawn closer to understanding what was going on. 
So each time he speaks about suffering, it goes in one ear and out the other because they didn't understand. But look at the response to this request. Look with me at verse 36. After the disciples had asked him to do whatever we ask of you, he responds, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if we were in that position, I'm sure we would have become a son of thunder, right? If they made this request to any one of us, we would have blown up. You know, I can see, you know, tempers flaring. I would have seen people yelling and saying, are you crazy? What do you think you're doing? But Jesus responds in such a, a kind and loving manner. Right? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't point out their faults. He doesn't say, you know, what were you thinking? But he responds as a servant leader. If you look at the end of this chapter, when Christ encounters the blind man named Bartimaeus, who cries out to Jesus, who wants to see so badly, the response from Jesus is the same. What do you want me to do for you? The focus of Jesus was on serving people. Wherever he went, no matter how he was being treated, he was a servant to the very end. And that is something that we should take away from this passage. But the second thing that we see here is that it's about sacrifice. And this is an idea that Jesus is trying to hammer home in in the minds of these servants, of these disciples. And what does this sacrifice look like? We see in the question that Jesus asked them, if they can drink the cup that he drinks, or to be baptized with the baptism with which he will be baptized. Now, at face value, you might be thinking, that's no big deal. I can drink out of that cup. You know, I've been baptized. That's not a big deal. But what he's referring to are metaphors. The cup was a metaphor for suffering. And so, in the Old Testament, a cup usually symbolizes something that was assigned by God. And so God made this personal to whoever he's giving it to. He's saying, this cup is for you. And so sometimes it can signify joy and prosperity, but more frequently it signifies God's judgment and wrath. And so when he says that that Jesus will drink this cup, he's basically saying that the wrath of, of God on human sin will be taken in by Jesus as he drinks it. So that's what he's trying to say. That when you drink that cup, you're incurring all the wrath that's happening and taking place. And the baptism here is a metaphor for being plunged into hardship. So if you ever witnessed a baptism that's a full immersion, if you've ever been to one of our retreats where we had those baptism in a pool or in a pond, you know that when they get dunked in, every part of them gets wet. You get drenched. There's nothing that's dry about you when you get full immersion baptism. And that's what he's saying. Is that when you get baptized into this, the hardships, the sufferings, everything will take over in your body. And he asks, are you willing to share in this fate and be doused with the waters of hardships and trials? I'm not sure how James and John interpreted the answer. But I'm pretty sure this was not the answer they were anticipating. 
No, they were hoping for Jesus to affirm their positions and guarantee and say, yes, you will have the title, you will have the honor, you will have all the prestige when you get to heaven. But instead, Jesus tells them that they need to sacrifice it all and expect to suffer. The disciples were expecting to receive honor and wealth, but instead, Jesus tells them that he does not have the authority to give them that kind of position. Only the Father can do that. All that they can do is sacrifice for Jesus and follow him. Jesus is saying that if you want to gain position in the kingdom of God, you don't just go out and grab it. He says you need to sacrifice it through suffering and in death. You know, one practical way of of approaching this is changing the way we think. You know, a lot of times we wake up and whatever we do, we have this mentality of, of thinking, what can I get? Isn't that true? When you go to get your food, when you go to McDonald's, you go to a restaurant, you think, what can I get? When you search for a job, when you think about which job is best for you, you think to yourself, what can I get that will benefit me most? You know, sometimes when you ask people for favors, you think to yourself, what can I get out of this person? Maybe some of you coming to church today, you're thinking, what can I get out of today's sermon? But I believe that's false. Instead, our mentality should be, how can I give? How about thinking about that for, for a morning? When you wake up, ask God and say, how can I give today? What's something that I can give to God that I can show that I'm serving Him? And I'm not asking for you to, to give, to tithe more than 10%. You know, that's not what it's all about. But I'm talking about what things you can sacrifice. What does it cost you to be here today? What did you sacrifice to be a part of this ministry? That is what Jesus is asking you. What have you sacrificed for this church, for for the cause of Jesus Christ? The third thing that we see here is that true greatness is about being a servant. True greatness is being a servant. And we see the, the reaction from the rest of the disciples. And when they heard this, they were upset. They were mad. They were angry. Not because they were trying to defend Jesus. Not because they felt like these disciples disrespected him. But they were upset and mad because they thought of it first rather themselves. And so when they became indignant, they were probably, you know, Giving them the evil eye. They're like, ooh, I can't believe you did that. It's like that sibling rivalry when you know that things are not going well between two people. And you can feel it in the room. It's the two disciples and the the ten. And you know that they're causing them to feel uncomfortable. Maybe they're not eating together. Or maybe they're making fun of them. And you can sense the tension that's, you know, being brought between these ten and the twelve, amongst these twelve disciples. And so Jesus, like a loving parent, he gathers them together and he addresses 
this issue. He tells them in verse 42 that in the world that we live in, everyone is about stepping up the ladder. You're climbing a ladder. You want to get the better position so that you can look down on other people, that you can tell them what to do, and you can make them do anything that you want them to do. And that's what the world teaches. But Jesus is teaching the exact opposite. He's saying if you want to climb up the ladder, you need to stay at the bottom and serve others. He's saying if you want to be recognized and respected, he says give up all your ambition and selfishness. You need to live out your life by serving others and being a slave to them. If you're looking for respect, learn to serve. You know, people want to be recognized for the things that they do. You know, some people, they want that pat on their back, or they want those words of affirmation, or people just to say, thank you, or you did a good job. But it's a problem when getting approval becomes their motivation for serving. Yes, we should recognize. Yes, we should encourage them. But do not rely on the words and approval of other people. We need people in the church who could care less if they ever get recognized as long as God's work is being accomplished. How many of us are seeking the approval of God? Too many of us are seeking the approval from man. But that's not the answer. We need to seek the approval of God. We need people who will be willing to become slaves so that others will get served. Now look with me at verse 45. And let's read it in one voice. Uh, Verse 45. Uh, Ready, go. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you have your Bibles, your Bible app, highlight this. Underline it. Write it down. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your door. Let this be a reminder. Every time I read this verse, I'm so humbled that how can Jesus live out these words? How is it that the Son of Man can do such a thing when He didn't have to? It starts off with, for even. The word even reminds us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. If there is anyone who ever walked on the face of the earth who should be served, it should have been Jesus. We all should be serving Jesus. We should be the ones catering to His needs. But Jesus flipped that around when He came here on earth. And He said, I came here to serve you. Jesus, who could have commanded angels to do his bidding, but rather did the bidding himself. He gave up all his wealth. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his powers to serve others. Christ paid the price for us. You see, we were all, we are all prisoners to sin. And Satan is a kidnapper. He's holding us hostage. And he's saying we will not release, he will not release us because we've given in to sin. 
And so if you've ever seen a movie where there's kidnappers, and you know that there's always usually a ransom that's involved. You know, the kidnapper would usually ask for money or something valuable in exchange for this life. And that is what's going on here. Satan would not give us up for free. He's saying, if you want these people, God, you have to pay the price. You know the rules, God. There's no way I'll just hand over these people to you. There needs to be a price that has to be paid. And so God allowed His Son, His only Son, to suffer the shame, the pain, the humiliation, and the agony of the cross for all sinners. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. If you remember the movie or the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it was written by C.S. Lewis. It's an all-time classic. And in that book, there's one of the brothers, his name is Edmund, and he is seduced by the white witch. Right? And what was he seduced with? Turkish delights. Have you ever had these? I don't know what the big deal is, but for them, it was a big deal. And so he could not stop eating these Turkish delights because they were so delicious. And so she had given him just enough. It was like sin. It tasted so good and you want more. And he was yearning for more. But it was all a plan. It was a ploy to get Edmund to lure his brothers and sisters to the witch so that she can kill them all. And so in order to get Edmund back, someone had to take his place. And who is that person? Aslan. The lion. The lion had to give up his life. He offered his life. He volunteered. He willingly gave his life in place of Edmund. And all this is pointing to Jesus. This is an allegory pointing to what Christ had paid for us. All of us are like Edmund. And Aslan is Jesus. And Jesus died for all of us. Why did Christ do it? He did it because he hates sin. He did it to satisfy God's demand for a perfect human sacrifice. He did it to please His Heavenly Father. He did it to set us free. Do you see that? These verses are essentially the gospel being spelled out for us. The only thing that Christ is asking us to do in response is to serve others just like He did. As disciples of Christ, do you hear what He's asking you to do? You know, too often, we want all the benefits. We want all the blessings of coming to church, being a part of a small group, you know, showing up to different events. But we're not willing to pay the price. Jesus didn't have to lay down His life and serve us. But He did it so that we may go and do likewise. And what's interesting, at the end of the chapter, Jesus encounters this blind man, like I mentioned before, named Bartimaeus, who asks for faith in contrast to James and John, who asked for fame. You know, sometimes I wonder, when I think of James and John, 
that as Jesus is being crucified, as He hung on that cross, and, he, and they saw, the disciples James and John saw this all happening. Who were next to Jesus? Two robbers at His right and His left. Two common criminals sitting, hanging next to Jesus. I wonder if that thought, that image hit their minds thinking, how foolish were we to make that request? Who are we to ask to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus? As he sees, as they saw these common criminals hanging next to Jesus, perhaps they thought they were in their place. We are all criminals. We are all sinners. When you see Jesus on the cross, what stirs up in your heart? Are you dying to serve? Let us pray. You know, when you look at your family, everybody has a role. Everyone, each person has a responsibility in order for things to run smoothly and for you to enjoy your life. When you look at this church, do you see it as your family? If so, why is there such a huge imbalance of people who are helping out? It should be everyone's responsibility to serve the church, to serve others, not just the staff and the leaders. And I'm not saying this to be a guilt trip, but simply what the Word of God is saying. What will your response be? Today you will have an opportunity to respond to this call, to serve the church, to love the church, to be like Christ by getting involved. Stop by the ministry fair and see what needs are required in, at, here at OEM. So can we do that? Can we prayerfully consider how we can serve and love the church? Let's stop thinking just about ourselves. Think about what can I get? What's in it for me? But think, how can I give today? Let there be a paradigm shift in how we think and how we pray and how we come to church. Are we dying to give? Are we eager to serve? Are we willing to die to ourselves? Just as Jesus did on that cross. That was his message for us. Let's come to him in prayer together.